Hello, people who listen to podcasts. Welcome to Gotta Get Out of This Town, a 2000 pop punk and emo pop retrospective. And today we will talk about another record. I am Elaine. And I'm Fletcher. And we don't have Adam with us because we decided that Adam cannot listen to records that are good. <laughs> but yeah, today we're talking about the seminal 1999 record, emo pop record by Jimmy Edward, Clarity. Generally, we have a big spreadsheet when generally all the records on there are emo pop and pop punk records that charted on Billboard, either on the hot 100 singles or on the top 200 records. But this didn't chart in any of the charts. We just added it because we will talk about Jimmy Eatward later in the yearage of the podcast. And this is just like an interesting, cool record. And I was like, why not? I'll put it on the spreadsheet so we can have a bit of variety. And eh, it was a good choice. It's a good record. For what it's worth, this got a second life as kind of a cult hit. But yes, when it initially came out, it was very much slept upon. And their next album would be their major breakout into the populace. Yeah, and before we start, like, did you listen to this record before this or whatever? Did you have any prior experience with it? I came on with Bleed American, their next album. Uh, and also, I will correct myself from the week prior. The album's title was changed due to 9-11. It did not come out on 9-11. I was confusing that with a They Might Be Giants album. What what They Might Be Giant album came out on 9-11? Mink Car. Oh, the the one that's not that good. Fine. Do you think it's actually bad, or do you think it's that way because it came out on 9-11? Oh, no, I think it has, like, a couple of good tracks and then a bunch of forgettable stuff on it. Yeah, I'm just screwing. It's just, like, sort of funny how They Might Be Giant keeps recurring on this podcast. Secret They Might Be Giant podcast. I think they definitely have some punk aesthetic to them. It's just not an angry punk. Yeah, they're, they're odd. They're odd to classify. Like, the label that more closely, like, get to them, I think it's art pop, because it's just, like, weird poppy shit that they do. I like them, but it's just, like, I would ne not necessarily call them punk in any way. But they regularly get classified as music for children or a novelty act and no they're just making ma music for themselves that tends to be pretty upbeat yeah i mean they literally did like three records for children one of which i own and it's actually really good that's the thing though i don't know how aimed at children it was so much as it was conveniently something you could give to a kid anyhow I, the the only thing i knew jimmy Edward from was the um, the, the one song what, what's it sweetness called? No, not sweetness, the other one. What's, what's the fucking name? The trance song. I don't know if I know that one. The middle. The, the, the big gotcha. one. The one that it the just one that takes has, some time. Yeah. Okay. The one now that has I like understand the beat you were going for. 300 
billion listen or whatever on Spotify. Now I'm looking at it. Yeah, that one is uh, not my favorite of their tracks, so I get it. I like it. Someone on Twitter at some point went like, oh, this song is like big trans mood, and the band Twitter went like, yay, approving thing, and that was a big thing on Twitter. Like, Got it. 400 years ago, as far as I can tell. <laughs> and yeah, I knew the song and was okay. Never really delved too deep into the band, because from that song, you would think, oh, they're like a fun, you know, poppy rock band. Like, you wouldn't expect this record from that song. And this record is, like, cool. This record is good. This is, like, this is probably the closest we're going to come for a while to the music I was listening to in this era, because I was an alt-rock guy before becoming an insufferable club kid. So this... This crossed over with a lot of my tastes. I had a lot of fun this week. I mean, me too. This reminds me of a lot, you know, from this era, you have like, you know, the more experimental stuff that all the music nerds like, like, you know, Shoegaze, My Bloody Valentine. Then you have like the bit like popular stuff. Well, you know, experimental, but still like alternative stuff like Radiohead or whatever. And then you have this, which is like a nice gap from that kind of indie, more like punky stuff, more emo stuff. It's cool. I like it. Yeah, this is definitely more in the emotional hardcore range of emo. Yeah, but even then, I feel like, and it might be the production, we'll talk about it, because if you listen to like the Get Up Kids record, it sounds like, you know, like very like lo-fi punk in terms of production as far as i can remember i haven't listened to the get up kids in a while but i remember that sort of like you know lo-fi vibe from the production well this is this is like produced it, it it's done in a studio it's like it sounds clear it sounds well like interestingly enough uh this one was recorded at a variety of different studios because they tried to get in on a major one and realized they did not have the ability to afford that for a whole album, so they had to switch to a second space. And at least one of these tracks, they claim, is basically pretty much a demo they'd had for years and just quickly sped out. Yeah, the the Christmas one? Twelve twenty three ninety five. Yeah, yeah, the Christmas one. Yeah. See, you said that and it tripped me up because one of the songs on the extended version of the album is, in fact, called Christmas Card. Oh, all right. I haven't, well, I haven't really listened to the extended two tracks. I just stopped at the 16-minute song. I bought this album uh, halfway through. Switched off of YouTube and I got the extended version with a couple of bonus tracks. Oh, neat. Uh, I was listening, as always, to the Spotify version. And I'll tell you, getting interrupted by the Spotify ads in the middle of like this very like emotionally charged songs is not it's not great. It's like I'm really getting into it. I will Spotify will like you to remember that you're listening to Spotify. I was being irritated with that by YouTube. It makes me less mad when I'm in the middle of lit and I have to hear a commercial for Disney halfway through because it's like this tracks. And the worst thing about Spotify is that Spotify literally advertises Spotify, which I don't get the point of, but sure. You're you're not even getting like a Disney commercial. You're not getting, you know, to know what shitty Marvel movie is now in theaters. You just get to know that you're listening to Spotify, which thanks. So the reason for that 
is that some workplaces will use that as an in-store radio. Ooh. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. Spotify and a lot of streaming services are used that way, and if you're not using the paid account, this is their way of punishing you by shaming you in front of all your customers. (laughs) I mean, yes, but the paid account is like $10 or whatever, which is not a huge expense for a a commercial... uh, I don't know. It's funny. Also, it's illegal to be broadcasting that in your store without a commercial account, so... Hmm. Anyhow, we want to start talking about what happened to Jimmy Edward before everything that we'll talk about today. Yeah, they have quite a bit of backstory leading up to where we are, because this is not a first or second album from them. I would also like to note that a lot of the information that I'm getting here, if someone wants to read more about this stuff, I'm getting from the book Post. I look at the influences of Poster Core 1985-2007 by Eric Grubbs. It's very good, it's sadly like out of print, at least here in Europe. There's no ebook or anything, but I did saw the book in Amazon US, so you can probably get hold of it. It's interesting. It actually clarified a bunch of things that didn't have any direct sources on the internet, so it was very useful in that way. Yeah, so they originally hailed from Mesa, Arizona, which is finally not California. I mean, we'll get to California eventually in this story, but we're not starting in California. That's already a small victory for us. And there are sources that mention that they initially formed as a Metallica cover band. There are not many sources, I could not confirm this, but it's pretty funny as an idea, because they formed in high school, so it would track. They definitely began with a heavier sound, though, so it does track that they could have been there. And very quickly, they began moving towards a standard punk sound. Yeah, the original name comes from a drawing that brother of Tom Linton, the guitar player of the band, tells the story where his two little brother always fought, and one was named Jimmy, and it was the big one, and he kept beating up the smaller brother. And eventually they found, like, a picture that the smaller brother drew with the bigger brother eating the word and the words Jimmy eat word written on the picture. Which is a cute story. It's cute. Cute name to derive your name. I guarantee that is not going to in any way be the dumbest explanation for a name we hear. I still think my favorite is the origin of the band Hot Chip's name, which is that they were entered into a battle of the bands and quickly needed to give a name for what to call themselves and just thought of, like, the food in their hands. But yeah, they they started playing, started, like, having this sort of, like, punk sound. And eventually they released their debut record on the small Phoenix label named Wooden Blue, which is literally a label that their high school friend had started. So, you know. The biggest claim to frame of Wood and Blue is that Jimmy Edward was on it under the Bird Records. I don't think it lived much. But yeah, the first record was fine. It was self-titled, which, by the way, they will have another EP that's self-titled. And good luck to you searching for their other EP, because every search gives you the Bird Records. And the other thing is, when they renamed Bleed American, they also called that Jimmy Eat World on the reprints. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. 
<sighs> yeah. Don't don't call records the same thing. <sighs> oh. Oh, you want to talk about Weezer or Peter Gabriel also being guilty of this? At least with Weezer, you can, like, search the blue album, the red album, the green album. I mean, I don't know why you would listen to anything that Weezer did aside from the blue album. But, you know, if you would like to, there are, like, other ways to refer to those records. But literally took me, like, a whole day to figure out how to listen to that EP that was titled the same as their original record. Well, how's this? How's Peter Gabriel 1 through 4, which were just called Peter Gabriel with a photo? The, the What's that? Like, there's the one that's really good that people refer to as Melt which is Melting Face, you have other ways to refer to them. Yeah, melt, Security, Car, and I forget the fourth every time. Yeah, melt is a great record. Melt is really good. Honestly, most of those are pretty good. Anyhow, back to Jimmy Eat World. Back to Jimmy Eat World, by Jimmy Eat World, 1994. It's a pretty standard punk record. There are a couple of um, slower sections, especially the track Usury has a very emo bridge that then feeds back into, like, fast punk. It's fine. It's fine. Jim Atkins wasn't singing yet. Most of the vocals in the songs are by Tom Linton's. And Jim Atkins is a better singer. I mean, this. Uh, I, I don't hate Tom Linton's voice, but, like, Jim Atkins has, like, a very striking voice. Their bassist was different. It was Mitch Porter, which eventually will leave the band. And yeah, and becomes a Mormon. Well, he was a Mormon already. He just goes on mission. Tom Linton well, also was a Mormon. Becomes a I'm devoting my everything to the church Mormon. Pretty much. We'll we'll talk about it in Static Prevails, which is the next record. But yeah, the first record goes fine. No one really cares, but they have like you know, it's the thing where like you're a band, you want to have something to show to people of music that you made. So they had that. And they started touring. They started touring. They started working on their sound. Eventually, a couple of years pass, and they start working on a less in-your-face punk sound. They are inspired by bands like Sunnydale Real Estate, you know, experimenting with different tempos in the music, experimenting with different just instrumentation. And yeah, they start touring. They start forming connections. They start doing the standard, we're a band, and we're trying to actually be a band things and yeah apparently they they get pretty friendly at some point with tom the launch of blink 182 so like that makes probably makes you happy those guys are going to come up in a lot of stories to start with just because they were such a major name in the scene yeah they they played at um tom the launch wedding at some point this is way in the future but like they played at tom the launch wedding at some point it's incredibly funny to me. Just because I'm... What does it feel like when you're at the wedding of a mega-hit band and this young upstart is outplaying them on every front? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, but eventually they caught the attention of Capitol Records which signed them to a six-album deal. The legend narrates that uh, Capitol Records was basically just in search of an emo band because emo was becoming the big thing and they were thinking they could like, make emo the new buzzword. So they originally approached Christy Front Drive, but Christy Front Drive just didn't want to sign with a major label. 
so they opted for Jimmy at Word instead. People deny this story, but you know, it circulated around enough that it's funny to retell. You know, it might not be true. It might be like 90% true. It might be 50% true. Who knows? Music legends. There's a lot of that to do with Capital and Jimmy Eat World. Their album we're covering today, Clarity, they claim that it's very possible the record label just didn't want to release it because they were not doing the numbers they hoped for. Yep, the history of Jimmy at World up to Clarity is very much one of we signed with a major and that was a really bad idea for us. And it kicks off for them next time around, but this album barely existed for it not for the grace of Drew Barrymore. But we'll get there. signing with Capital, they start working on their first record, which is Static Prevails. By the time they start working on it, and by the time they sign with Capital, Mitch Porter left the band, again, to pursue a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons. The book that I read mostly reported that it was more of a thing where, like, his parents didn't want him to join with, like, a major label-signed band, and so that was the second option. Just go and you know, have Mormon missions all over the world, which I don't know what that entails. Oh, it's missionary work. Think a less exploitative version of Catholic missionaries, and that's what you're getting in their overseas outreach. And yeah, and after Mitch Porter leaves, they call in Rick Birch as the new bassist, which is interesting because he was actually one of the original bassists when they were forming bands in high school and couldn't join Jimmy at Ward for various reasons. He was in other bands, but they called him back for when they started the big major label contract. And so Jimmy at Ward was reunited and ready to work on their first big record with a big major label. This is where they meet Mark Trombino, who becomes their producer over a lot of their future works, and he will go on to be the guy who worked on Blink-182's Dude Ranch, so he's got a very specific sound that fits the genre. Yeah, this record sounds way better than Dude Ranch, but, you know, Dude Ranch was a punk-punk record, so it makes sense for it to be, you know, mixed like, you know, like a fart sound sung through like a fan. You know, the butt song. We're just going to keep... This is the butt era of Blink-182. <laughs> At this point, they also escape Mesa, Arizona and end up in California. Yay! Because that's where this podcast will dwell for many episodes. Yeah, we should have called it Gotta Get Out of California because everyone's in California. It's always been California, say two of your co-hosts. <laughs> is California actually a cake? Ugh, let's not. (laughs) 
interestingly enough, Static Prevails is a giant jump from that original EP. It's a much more polished sound, which you can put down to Trombino, I'm sure. But the vocals are now being split equally between Adkins and Linton. Linton is going to phase out of vocals because it's very distinct when he comes up. He only does one track on Clarity for that reason. The one track that he does in Clarity is probably my favorite track of the record. I don't mind him. Really? Okay. Jim Atkins is like a really good vocalist, though. So I'm like, I'm not, not complaining. He, Jim Atkins is like good, has very emotional voice and very distinctive. Yeah, real range. And yeah, Static Prevail opens with like this really harsh, high energy track. But as the record progresses, the Midwest emo influences are pretty clear. It's a more thoughtful, slower record. It's fine. It, it shows progression musically from the band. But it's not near the levels of like actual like interesting textures and interesting composition of clarity. There are very few standouts in this record, but it definitely like it is definitely interesting from the point of view of how their sound evolved. It's a lead-in, but it's a very clear evolution. Everything they're doing is jumping towards the bleed American sound bit by bit, and each record is a real clear stepping stone. After Static Prevail underperformed, they mention it sold probably like 5,000 copies, which is not much. A thing we have to stress is, this is an era where records would go multiple platinums. Golds and platinums were a thing that was very insanely easy to get if you were a major artist, which was what all of these companies were pushing forward. The push towards digital has really dampened what a sales number means for music. So... 5,000 in that era compared to now, where like that's a pretty solid success, especially if you're an independent band. That is a catastrophic failure for someone who just got signed. And they were with like a major label. Like there definitely was a problem, you know, at least from one of the parts involved. Jimmy and Ward basically weren't particularly happy with their label. Mostly, if you read the interview from them at the time, they basically thought that, yeah, Capital had a very, like, pinpoint way of doing things, where if you were a successful band, they could move a bunch of units in terms of sales, but they didn't have the infrastructure to support a growing band like Jimmy at War. They didn't have the patience and resources to assign to create a fan base for a more niche band that was just starting up. And there was also like a whole discussion where, as mentioned, Capital was trying to make emo the new buzzword, like grunge before that. Emo was supposed to be this new buzzword, this new inward, and Jimmy at Word really hated being called emo. They thought it was mostly a marketing ploy from the label. So there was lots of conflict, and eventually this conflict peaked in Jimmy at Word touring and talking with the band uh, Blessed and Jake. The drummer of Lesgen Jake was the founder of noted indie label Fueled by Ramen, which will come back a lot when we're talking about pop punk in the 2000s. At this time, I was also Fueled by Ramen, so it tracks. 
And yeah, and they decided to release a small EP with Fueled by Ramen because their contract allowed them to release EPs and singles with other labels. This is hard to track down and might have been pushed under a different name at some point was the only research I could find. You can find singular tracks of it on YouTube, which I found like a couple of hours ago. Yeah, a lot of their work during this period is on oddball collections and things, and it makes it very challenging to track down for a history, at least using legal methods. On this EP, they started refining the really slow tracks. This is a very quiet EP, there's almost no like high-energy rock song. The most interesting things of this EP is that it has a way quieter version of one of my favorite tracks on the record, on the Clarity record, which is Your New Aesthetic. Your New Aesthetic originally had a way quieter acoustic version of that song, and you can find it on this EP. It's so strange. I did find that track to listen to, and boy, I don't know how they got from one to the other. Yep, it's very different. They even scrapped the lyrics. I'm not sure why the name stayed. Technically the same song. Not really, but technically. Yeah, the EP basically doesn't do much for them, but at least standing from interview, their label got way more interested in them after they released this EP. Again, you never know what percentage of these things are true, but this is what they were claiming, that after this EP, their label started having much more interest in them as a band. I believe this given a lot of backroom talk about record labels and how the people in charge are entirely willing to throw something out to protect the brand. You know, maybe it's better to just buy them out rather than pay for the recording time because pff, this isn't going anywhere. They release this small EP, do some more touring, they get ready for making their second record with Capital, which is a full-length LP. They do this after touring with Les and Jake, they do this after touring with Blink-182, when they will meet Tom DeLonge, and eventually they go back into the studio, once again Mark Trombino is their producer, and they had a distinct feeling at the time, or at least they were basically everything but told that if this second record underperformed, the label would have just cut them because they didn't think they were, you know, they were any value to the label at the time. And this is Clarity. This is the record which we'll talk about today, which had, you know, definitely a more mature sound for the band. It's interesting because this is where maybe with that feeling of we're about to being cut from the label, they might have tried going more pop, but instead they go very, not experimental, but they go very, very niche with this record. It's a softer record, it's like more nuanced, has less big chorus-oriented song, there's lots of, there's lots of texture to it. This is a fantastic counterpart to the Lit album from last week, because whereas they tried to go very broad, but in a we're aiming for the biggest audience possible. This is an album from a band who just goes, well, we got one more shot at this, what's us? It's very adventurous, production-wise, sound-wise. The thing it has in common with the Lit record is that they try a lot of things, but still in the, you know, in the framework of what's our sound, what, what are we, which is really interesting, really good. Yeah, the worst thing I could say about any track on this album is it's not my style, but it's all very good and very broad. 
Yeah. And the label didn't think so, because during most of uh, the time after they released the record, they released a couple of singles to the radios, but Jimmy Edward wasn't even sure this record would have been released at all. They didn't have a release date for it, they didn't know when would that happen, and every time they would talk to their label, they would always get the usual response of, yeah, we will see if you can garner more buzz for this record, and then we can find a suitable slot to release it. Which is, must be a nightmare, having worked so hard on this record and then not even knowing when it releases. Must be a fucking nightmare. Yeah, from all accounts, it sounds like they turned this in in the range of a year before it was put out and it was completely done and only through a convenient combination of the Drew Barrymore movie Never Been Kissed and a single of theirs from this album, making it onto that soundtrack, which got to LA radio station K-Rock. I guess we also have to explain this to some of the younger listeners. Radio, especially major outlets like K-Rock, was how you pushed a band, a single. MTV was a thing, videos, but you got the groundswell to get there by knowing or having the right kind of payola to get a track to a major DJ who would give you the airplay that got you the fans. That So this one move got them a huge West Coast following. And now if you're asking to what, what is radio, just imagine Spotify, but like on a specific piece of metal that you use only for music and that's like five times as big as your phone. Oh my god, you just made me feel so old in realizing there are probably people who do not listen regularly to radio or enough to know what that is who are old enough to hear this show. Okay, I haven't listened to radio that's not from on my PC in about... 10 years. I listen to radio semi-regularly because there are a couple of BBC radio programs that I really like, but that's, you know, I don't have a dedicated radio that picks up radio signal. I just listen to the radio on the BBC website. Oof. Grandpa alt-rock <laughs> strikes again. But yeah, um, Lucky Denver Mint became the first single of the record by accident because it was on the soundtrack album. And soundtrack albums were another way that bands could break big or really get out of a niche back in the day, because the right Hollywood music producer going, this is it, this is the sound for this, or thinking you have the best track on a score, means that you're going to get all of the promotion for the movie and your band at the same time. Yeah. Have you watched the video for Lucky Denver Mint? So I also know exactly what you're going to say, which is that we should point out we used a very in-depth interview with the band about this album from 2009 when they started touring around for the 10-year anniversary to replay it and promote it. They gave in-depth talks about the making of, each track, so on. And for Lucky Denver Mint, they said that they had a video for this that used clips from the movie intercut with them playing on a stage 
the traditional Hollywood thing. I could not find any trace of that video. I don't know if that's the kind of thing where it got copyright claimed offline due to the clips of the video being or the movie being flagged, but the actual video I found has no sign of the film in it. The video that I saw was weird and completely off tone for the song, and but I don't think those are clips from the movie because they are about they are not they are about people playing sports. Basically, four jocks keep coming up and hassling the guys while they're trying to have a nice day. Yeah, and they, like, challenge them at sports, and they are not, you know, the four member of Jimmy at Ward are not good at sports, according to this video. Until they start powerbombing people. <laughs> yes, then I marked out for that. The last 30 seconds are just them destroying four <laughs> dudes who look like the big shit. <laughs> yes, that was great. But also, like, the whole... This is, like, a very soft, like pop song that's about you know sort of about hubris like the big chorus is like you're not bigger than this not better why can't you learn yeah it's very much about you know someone trying and failing and you know and about hubris and it's re it's a really good song uh i don't know why the video is like wacky sports shenanigans it doesn't fit at all I like to think that the four bullies from this video grow up to be the people in the Half Your Age video from Joywave this last year, which has a lot of very similar basketball shenanigans. But yeah, it's, an, it's not a good video. I don't know if the one with clips for the film would be a better video, but probably not. They, they weren't particularly happy about it. The song doesn't do great. Mostly people just ended up buying the soundtrack CD rather than buying the actual record by Jimmy Edwards. But the song getting traction convinced the label to actually release Clarity, which is, you know, a small victory at least. This record was released for all of us to listen to. They also released a second single to the radios, which doesn't really have any video or anything, but it's Blister. It's the Tom Linden song. I think it was a good choice. I think that song is really good. But, you know, same thing. Doesn't get any big traction. Yeah, what you gonna do? And so after this, with no real critical or commercial success, Capital drops Jimmy Eat World. And it's unsurprising, I suppose. But the band figured out that they had something going. Clearly, they were picked for the soundtrack off of some kind of idea and figured they were going to self-produce their next record through touring. They hit up the Warp Tour that year and did a brief spell in the UK. And money from their day jobs would round out everything to let them produce a thing that we're going to cover another time. In the next episode of... Gotta get out of this town, we will discover if the gambit by Jimmy Edward played out and if they managed to reach the success that they always know they deserve. And by next episode, I mean in a year or so, because there's like 2001. So yeah, it's gonna be a while before we talk about their next record. However, if you're like me and picked up the version that has the bonus tracks, this album now ends with a demo version of what will be their major single off that album. Yeah, it's a good song. Sweetness. This was 
what led to Jimmy at Word Clarity. And from there we can actually talk about the record, which is a joy, a complete joy. I love this record. This starts wonderfully with Table for Glasses, the first track. It's the most musical track we've covered on this show. It's It's got a very art rock vibe to it. There's a big theme of like slow tempo repetitive melodies that they use a lot in this record, which I love, sort of like almost droning melodies that get repeated and repeated until they create like this very interesting textured ambience. It's great. And I think the ultimate summary of this is that in their memory of it, they talk, one of them just describes that talking about this song reminds him he had yet to see Bjork live at this point in time. It's like, (laughs) this explains so much about their sound and why I like these guys. Yes, they take a wide range of influences. Then this is an opener's opener. This is just like eases you very comfortably into the record. Like slowly introduces you to the sound. It's very comfortable. I like it. This is a 90s version of the Cure's opener to Disintegration. Very same ambient space. Oh, yes. I, I can definitely see the connect. There are lots of connection with like alternative music from the past in this record. I think they take those influences and play them pretty well and make a unique sound that will end up being very influential for other emo bands in the future. But, you know. They they get something here. They get they get a lot of mileage. Interestingly, I I feel also lyrically this is very interesting because so far we've had very you know punk bands which are very literal, very like this song is about this and I'm gonna spell it out and I'm not gonna be particularly artsy about it. But Tom Atkins, which pretty much at this point took the role of main songwriter and main songwriter and main singer because basically he would just like write a song and sing it. That was pretty much his creative process as the line on that interview when he would have a musical idea, he would just start writing the lyrics to it and then obviously would sing it. Uh, But he has like this really good voice, but also has this very good songwriting style where it's always very abstract, but he always managed to have, always managed to have like imagery that grounds the abstractness to the ground like it's very abstract in that there's not a literal focus on the song but all of the imagery is very grounded it's very like something that you could have seen in your like it's bits like it's almost like they are almost like montages of things that you could have seen in your life and they are good they're not you know not talking about masterful storytelling but for the kind of atmospheric just like emotional music that they're making is great. And it also doesn't sound like it's written by a 14-year-old, which for this podcast is already a medal on its own. You found your age, Tim Atkins. Good job. I was going to say the lyrics are probably the part of this album that is the weak link to me. Oh, really? Because with a couple of exceptions, I can't recall any of the actual words to these songs. That's fair. They definitely fit an atmospheric sound, but I can also see why, unless you want a post-rock emo thing, this is definitely not a major label album. 
Yeah, no, this is definitely not a major label album. I like the lyrics in that I think they're well written, but they're definitely not accessible and they're not necessarily what you come to this from. Like, it's not, you don't get the standard love song in this record, which is something that you should have on a major label record. Yeah, the closest we come would be track two, Lucky Denver Mint. And we've we've already kind of discussed that. We went through the lyrics or the ghost video or whatever. Yeah. It's a melancholic, sad rock song with a weird off-tone video. Has a really good chorus. There's a reason why Lucky Denver Mint was like the song that was picked up. This is probably the most like, the song with the most recognizable chorus. Has like this really good like melancholy feeling. And again, like I think I I really like it lyrically. I really like the, um, you know, you're not bigger than this. You're not better than this. Why don't you learn? That's like... That's like a just a good snippet of writing that tells a lot, tells a whole story without telling much, especially mixed with the, with the general feel, the general texture, the general really melancholic vibe of the track. I really like looking at Like It Denver Mint. It, yeah, it, really the name is the only part that loses me, but I also just presume it's some kind of candy. No, no, it's not. It's uh, according to Genius, it's about a specific type of coin because it's about you know flipping a coin in a wishing well. It's about a specific huh. rare minting of a coin. I'll be damned. I literally went and looked at it for this reason because I was like, why is this about like mints? But it's it's not apparently. It's about coins, which makes sense. Again, not the most accessible writing, but it's perfect tonally for. Never Been Kissed, so I see why this was picked up for that movie. Isn't Never Been Kissed sort of like a comedy film? I watched the trailer and it looked very wacky, with like Drew Barrymore going back to high school for some reason. Uh, I think it's, she's a news reporter or something. Yeah, it's it's one of those late 90s, early 2000s farce comedies about how someone who's super hot somehow could not do things that are supposed to be common and wacky hijinks ensue. We will definitely have, like, a special episode where we watch all of this film. Like, this is a double feature we replicate. All right. <laughs> I, like you say, I'm entirely willing to just do some offbeat things every once in a while to break up album, album, album. Just because I know there are going to be periods where we have some samey stuff. Anyhow, Lucky Denver Mint, good. The song after that is Your New Aesthetic, which is... I said that Blister is my favorite song of the album. I think Your New Aesthetic is my favorite song of the album. This is absolutely my favorite track on this album. This is the guitar sound I associate with Jimmy World. It's got... I love their description of the bridge as horror movie music when the knife goes in. It's like it's timed to that. They go from this very lush, open instrumentation of Lucky Denver Mint to like this very dry guitar song with almost like it almost like feels like nine inch nail without the electronic stuff it's like very like not not even angry but like very tense very like harsh tense is a great word for this and the, the opening words of the song made me realize what 
Jimmy Eat World on this record reminds me. And this is like Ben Gibbard stuff, but like mm. good. Ben Gibbard of uh, Dead Cup for Cutie and The Postal Service. They remind me a lot of him, but like not as cheesy and not as bad as that stuff. I'm gonna make myself a lot of enemies, but I don't think Transatlanticism is a good record. I've heard the name, never heard the album. I'm sure I've heard a single or two, but that's as much as I can say. Okay, the I Will Follow You Into The Dark. Oh god, that. Yeah, I know that track. He's a better songwriter than that single, but he's very problematic. And I feel Jimmy at Word hits a lot of the same feelings that Ben Gibbard generally tries to evoke, but it didn't take, you know, 20 years for them to become decent songwriters. I'm, I'm happy I found a band that I can listen to when I feel like listening to Transatlanticism, but then I realized that Transatlanticism sort of sucks. Okay, he is the one I'm thinking of who wrote the Burn song about Zoe Deschanel after their divorce. Got it. I don't know what that is, but it doesn't surprise me. I think it was Death Cab. I remember hearing the song at the time and thinking, oh, this is this is good. This is, oh, this is uh, from a band I don't usually hear a lot of. And then someone told me when I had it on in the car, yeah, this is uh, what he wrote about when Zoe Deschanel uh, broke up with him in slow motion and like left his shit in the yard. It's like, oh, that's a messy everything. That is a man I'm going to have to start looking out for as we go through this. No, he doesn't do pop punk. He's more of like a soft indie boy. But just musically, like especially Jim Atkins' voice, reminds me a lot of that stuff. And Jimmy Edward are better on this record than him. It just made me happy because it's like, this is, there's a lot of like the songwriting and um, just general musical feel that I like from that stuff, but translated in a record that's way more, you know, adventurous and doesn't have lyrics about friend zones. And I appreciate those two things. You also have here in the notes that this sounds like proto-muse, and that's a very good descriptor for this song. Yeah, there's definitely like a that feeling of ash guitar that that will hear from muse. Uh, that's another band that went to the absolute shit. Ah... <laughs> uh... I know I liked them for a bit, and the last thing I remember really hearing was their weird We Have Decided to Replace All Our Instruments with iPads dubstep guitar album. That album was so bad that retroactively made me hate all of their previous records that I really liked. <laughs> Just like, well, I'm not sure I liked all of your other stuff if this is where it was leading to. <laughs> I 1000% get that. As a Cure fan who has really had to mark them down, because 413 Dream is one of the worst records I've ever listened to. Is 413 Dream the one with the video that's done in Claymation? No. 413 Dream was their only album around the 2000s. And I think it's still the last thing the band has put out. Robert Smith has been threatening more ever since. But yeah, we were talking about Jimmy Edward. You see when a band has like influence from other things that reminds you of other things that then you can discuss and you can have like a healthy, you know, conversation <laughs> unlike Blink-182, which just did the same thing for like a whole hour of record. There's an alternate universe version of this podcast where both of us were subtly noticing that the fart sounds were pulled from Jim Belushi and Animal House and... We were much deeper dive on their influences there, but no, we're not that. Just a 
and that will move into believing what you want, which is a lot more slow. This record has a good flow of slow things leading into guitar-oriented things. This track is, it's middle of the road for me. It's not a low. It's competently, I would put it about the center of the album, but I bump it up a little because in their commentary, they mentioned this coming from being at an event with Duran Duran, which was out of there appearing on a tribute album to the band where they covered New Religion, and I love that cover. It's pretty good. It's not just a stock. We're doing this. It's a good reinterpretation of a song, which is not something you hear out of a lot of covers, and I love it. To go on another tangent, I was recently listening for some reason, and this band will come up at some point, to Daisy's Mom by Fountains of Wayne. And because sometimes I just do that, I started looking for covers of the song, and god, that's a, that's a pit you can explore on your own time if you want. There are about like 40,000 a cappella cover. There are also like a bunch of people doing slow version with clearly ironic intent, and I'm less into those ones. I knew that I would eventually get to this topic, but this does provide a good segue to me because, you know, that being a big hit in this genre makes me think, I want to pitch to you, the ultimate pop punk song is Scotty Doesn't Know from Eurotrip. Oh, okay. I mean, it will come. That song charted, so we will listen to the record where it's from, but please tell me your reasoning. I think it's just original to that soundtrack. No, the, it wasn't a record, because I, I checked that. Okay. I think that track is the perfect pinnacle of this genre, and especially how they're able to work with it multiple times in that film to show just the skeleton is versatile enough for multiple genres, including the club mix. Love it. Huh. I actually never saw that film. I know the song, but I never saw the film where it's come, where it's from. So, I will throw this out there. I think that maybe it's because I am an uncultured American swine and not a member of the European Union. But I actually think that that film has a very good sense of humor and, with like two jokes of exception, holds up really well in terms of comedy. Okay. Comedies are hard for me. I'm very picky with my comedies, so... But yeah, that can be another... You know, that's the triple feature. Never Been Kissed, Replicate, and what's the name of that? And Eurotrip. That's the drive-in triple feature that we can do at some point. Why not? But again, totally down. Sure. So let's talk about A Sunday instead, because if we discount the two tracks that are way too long, this is probably the third weakest track on the album for me. I think it's got a bit going for it in that they play around with instrumentation. You know, the tinkling chimes to close this out is something we don't hear anywhere else on the album, but they are super cheesy. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> I have the whiniest track on the album written down. Musically, this sort of reminds me of a track, and I don't remember what specifically, but like, it's either a Porcupine Tree or a Steven Wilson track. It has that very, like, again, this very droning ambience to it. It's very adventurous production wise, instrumental wise. Uh, it's a bit too cheesy. I think it's probably the lowest point of the record. I agree. It's a bit too cheesy. The tinkling sounds and the strings are a bit too much. It's not bad though. I listen to the song. It's just, it's just probably the most cutable song in the record. But I'm still, I'm still okay with it. Yeah, I think the most cuttable song on the record is a good descriptor of this. It's not terrible, but it definitely has a... Mm, I don't know. I think the record would flow better if Believe in What You Want lead it into Crush. But, you know, it's not hampered immensely by this being there. It's not like a complete stop. It's just like, I feel... Part of why I don't love it is where it's placed, because believing in what you want, I think, would flow very well into Crush. Yeah, it's a much better fit, where it's also... Crush doesn't hit as hard for me as Believe in What You Want or Your New Aesthetic, but this is, again, them creeping towards that future sound. It's an in-between. Until that last chunk, when all the energy comes out and the vocals get louder and the drums have moved in. It's Again, but it's very good flow-wise, because it flows from a Sunday, which is very quiet, and it sort of feeds into the energy, that energy, and slowly brings it up. And also... I will repeat this, it's really nice to not be listening to a record where the singer just complain about mom or whatever. There's a maturity to these lyrics on both levels that we haven't had yet. Yeah, this is weird because this, would n this should not be things that you praise the band on, but in the context of this podcast, yes, these are things that you praise the band for. Actually, we've yeah. had a rough road to get here. Yeah, this is a lovely oasis. Yeah, at this point they were probably like, what, 23, 25? That's the kind of thing that you're supposed to write at that age. Cool, abstract. Yeah, same age as Blink-182. Yeah. <laughs> God. Don't remind me. I'm just saying, same rough demographic. After the swelling of energy and crush at the end, we once again get brought down with like this really neat, crappy drum machine percussions with 12-23-95, which is actually the song that closely reminds me the most of the Postal Service. This is one of the rougher tracks on this album, and finding out that this is probably the earliest material on this album, something they'd had kicking around for a while, explains that. You mentioned the drum machine. I was thinking about the uh, 
electronic instruments where every preset possible on the keyboard was used at different times. <laughs> it, it's a sound. It's not necessarily, you know, it's a rough lo-fi sound, but it's a sound. I like this song. Yeah, it's not bad. It's the description I have heard of the RZA as a producer is that at first he made good lo-fi beats because he had to sample things and he didn't have a lot of equipment. And unfortunately, he never pushed himself when he had the money for better equipment. So he still does a bunch of lo-fi beats that you shouldn't be getting out of a multimillionaire. <laughs> this is that era of come up. And thankfully, they're not going to stick around in this region. Yes, that is fair. I, I, I like this song. I think it's very good at creating a mood. It's like very droning, very repeating. That has that like... Rep repetitive lyricism that sort of works in creating an atmosphere and musically it's like sometimes they just hit this really good musical place where it's just like it's not sad it's not happy it's just like this very specific bittersweet mood that works so well on this record there are like this and um the track that we already talked about lucky denver mint hit this, like, very specific musical itch for me, which is, like, this sort of, like, eerie bittersweetness, and it works so well. I I actually like this track. It, it should be also be noted that I have a weakness for crappy, lo-fi, just drum machines. It's just, like, they're really cute to me. It reminds me of um, John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats writing some of his uh, lo-fi solo stuff, on literally the presets of a Casio, they they have that feel to me when I hear like this crappy drum machine. Absolutely, and it's, it's fun. I don't think this is bad. I just think it's one of the rougher sounding tracks. And so when they mentioned in the interviews about this album that yeah, this debuted as a thing in someone's living room screwing around with a keyboard, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. for the probably the poppiest song of the record which is 10 this has a really good drum loop it's a low-key song probably my number three al on the album it's good uh, it's probably the most chorus oriented song of the record has like this big chorus which where the production swells and like powers it up it's a good song it's probably the poppiest thing i'm surprised it wasn't the second single, because I think it's probably the most radio-friendly song of the bunch, which is not a bad thing, it's just very recognizable. Yeah, especially with the description of how Capital was trying to force them into a specific sound, I think that were they another band, this might have been a single, but they wanted Jimmy Eat World to fill that emo niche they were trying to capitalize on, which I need to look into a few more things they were doing at the time especially with how the band describes their management not knowing what the emo sound actually was. I would be 
I would be real curious to see what their contemporaries in that space were from Capitol Records. I, I love the idea, and it's very believable that Capitol at the time wanted to make emo this big buzzword without even knowing what the band that called emo sound like. That's very amusing, and probably, probably what happened. I, I think that explains so much of how they were mishandled. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, tennis good. Tennis sound to me like one of those like shitty like two thousand piano rock song like the the folding or whatever, but actually good. Like instead of being like sappy all the way down, it has this very sweet verses that lead into this chorus that actually has a lot of like built in musical tension. So there's like this really good interplay when it switches from the verse and the chorus which actually makes it, you know, fulfilling as a whole song rather than being just like a radio thing. Like it. Ten is a workhorse track I'm never going to skip. Yeah, it's sweet, but it also has tension. It builds emotions and then leads you to a big, atmospheric, slow track, which is just watch the firework, which is where I feel the record sort of loses a bit of steam but it's fine because we're about to approach the really good bit of the record which is the ending bit so were it not for the finale this would be the low point of the album for me it's a very meandering track there's no real hook to it it's seven minutes long it's really interesting structurally because it starts with a standard verse chorus structure and then there's like this very cool verse which have with heavier guitars, and then the verse itself morphs into the chorus of the second half where it gets repeated and repeated, which is like very cool structurally. The first half is sort of bland though, but when it gets into the big guitar bit, yeah, yeah, I can listen to that. That's cool. This has some of the most notes I wrote on this, and that's probably because it's the longest song, and it was not grabbing me, so I was just sketching things down, but... Seven minutes, which is not that long, but, you know, it's long for this record. It's long for this genre. Yeah. On any other album, this would be the longest track. This is already longer than anything we've dealt with on any prior album for the show. Yes. Two of the tracks on this album combined are 23 minutes between them. Yeah, like a prog band. Uh, I have some things to say about that later as a prog fan, trust okay. me. <laughs> but Just Watch the Fireworks has some very pleasant fiddling in the middle of it. And I mean, like, literal fiddling. But at five minutes, it turns from being a rehash of the first half into a more drum-driven track. But then all the lyrics turn into extended yells, so what little complexity it's added has dumbed down the rest of it elsewhere. That's fair. I like the strings riff at the end. I think it has this very, like, lush string tune that gets repeated towards the end. I, I would agree with the rest, but I think there's, like, this tiny bits of string at the end that has a lot of pathos behind it, which I like. But yeah, the track is alright. It's not that great. I like the back half. If this track was just the back half and didn't make me wait through a week's intro, I'd be much higher on it. That's fair. Such 
similarly, the next track, for me, This Is Heaven, feels like if we did the opening of Just Watch the Fireworks, but in half the time. I like For Me This Is Heaven, but mostly because the lyrics remind me of uh, OK Ghost, The Writing Is Underworld. Mm -hmm. It's a really good song about a relationship that's clearly ending, that's clearly over, but the people in it aren't quite ready to let go. I think it has some really good imagery. The clock stuff, there's like clock metaphors, is a bit trite, but it works, it's fine. Like sometimes trite things are fine, they're functional. I think it's well written, it's, it's the most mature breakup song we've ever had on this podcast, and probably the most mature breakup song we'll ever have on this podcast. There's an ending bit where they overlap a lot of voice samples from the song, and it's really good, I'm really into that shit, where like overlaying vocals are extremely my stuff. I like this song. It's not, it's a bit sappy, it's a bit cheesy, but it's like good cheese. It's like aged fine cheese. This is to me what a 20 something version of some of those blink or lit tracks is. Because, yeah, you said this is the most mature breakup song, and it covers some of the same ground lyrically as the other albums. Where it's just, yeah, this relationship is over. But, you know, we had fun while we were here. I wish it wasn't, but I guess it's all falling apart around us. Doesn't quite get there, but it's sort of like it's more, you know, Tallahassee by the Mountain Goats than whatever songs about women being bitches that Blink made. This has more that, like, dire, inevitable, like, angsty feeling that something like, you know, The Writing is Underworld would have from a Kego, which is a great song. I don't love the late OK Go things, but that song is like really good songwriting. Or that's something like, you know, Tallahassee would have. It, it's good. It's simpler than those things, but uh, it has some meat and it has a lot of nuance to it, which I like. Blister is very good musically. And then there's the lyrical content, which both of us were kind of like, ooh, too, I believe. If I didn't have any reference to this content, I would love this song. I think the it's a big emo, Midwest emo anthem, and how long would it take me to walk across the United States all along? It's an absolute, like, big stadium chorus that you could just, like, scream out, and it doesn't make any sense, but it's cool. Yeah, I think both of us love the song. I love the song. And I, again, like, the lyrics are effective, they are, like, cool imagery, but should be noted that the Wikipedia article, and I'm gonna note this, because initially I took this at face value, but then I did some research, so I'm not sure how accurate this is. The Wikipedia article for this record reports that... The claim that made that we're talking around is that this is based on Tom Linton's upbringing in the Mormon church, and this is supposed to represent the prophet Moroni walking across the U.S. all alone to bury the golden plates that would help found the religion. Which I could see that. That could be a thing. I don't think reading the lyrics immediately brings you to think that, but that could be. The problem that I have with Wikipedia is that it doesn't cite any sources for that. And all of the googling that I did didn't bring up anything about this thing. So 
it might be, it also might not be, it might just be something someone on Wikipedia theorized. It does not give anything to do with that. It Basically, it's just somebody spun things out of the chorus, and there's really no meat to any of the legend here other than how long would it take me to walk across this land. It's not mentioned in any interviews in the actual liner notes about the album we could find, so it's a very strange claim, and the song rules. How long would it take me to walk across the United States all alone? The West Coast has been traumatized, and I think I'm the only one still alive. I, I don't know if the lyrics are about that or about something else, but fucking like the how long would it take me to walk uh, along the United States all alone? The West Coast has, has been traumatized and I feel like I'm the only one left alive. They are like iconic, they're singable, they're like, you know, you can see the influences of these lyrics and like emo that will come after this. Like, this reminds me of Why Am I Never Going to Space, or whatever that song is called from The World is a Beautiful Place, and I'm No Longer Afraid to Die. Like, this has that kind of epicness, that kind of big, singable, like, melancholic anthem that you can just, like, shout out and sing. I love this song. So good. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Easily second place. Okay, you're, you've said that three things are the best track of the record in your notes in our discussion. Because I'm looking at your notes for Clarity, which just starts with best track of the record. Yeah. I like this record. What do you want from me? Oh, no. I have nothing. It's just like, wait, pick one. Pick one. I mean, this is why I give a top three and bottom three for each one. That's fair. Uh, I mean, in no order, the top three are definitely Clarity, Blister and uh, your new aesthetic, but yeah. your new aesthetic is probably the first one. I, I would find it harder to choose between Blister and Clarity as the second one, because they're both so good. I would swap 10 in above Clarity, but Clarity's definitely my four. Yeah. It's good. This is a very good song. It's got some solid solo work in the middle from different parts of the band. The lyrics are tight. It's the title track, and I can see why they named it after this, because this is a, this doesn't have the bloat of a band early in their career. Yeah, this is Jim Adkins, Jim Adkins really coming out and like pulling his weight like vocally. I think he has like, a lot of charisma on this track. Again, this could have been a single. It's really good. And uh, yeah, it's a good take on a breakup song when it's, uh, you know, it's about, like, again, mature reflection about... This relationship isn't working, and maybe that's fine. Maybe we, you know, things are supposed to end sometimes. It's like, good. Yeah. Nobody is mad about the other person existing in this. No. This is just like a vaguely melancholic, like, thoughtful reflection on the end of a relationship. 
again, this is when, once again, sort of the comparison with Tallahassee came out, but like punk and emo and powerful. Has a cheesy bass line, but it's fine. I'll, I'll take the cheesy bass line, it's fine. Sometimes cheesy things are good, as I established before. Yeah, 100% into this song. Again, I see why the album was named with this track. Very good. I wish it closed here. I like the closing song. I don't hate the closing song. Uh, good Night Sky Arbor, by the, by the way, which is the last track of the record. So, you mentioned Prague earlier. <laughs> this is a 16-minute track that came out of them wanting to use an entire piece of tape to do a song. And then they learned, oh, that's 16 minutes long. Oh, crap. <laughs> Basically, this is two four-minute songs bridged by a bunch of filler where the instruments slowly change between them. I don't I don't think it's necessary for, like, I'll, I'll fight you on that, but finish your thoughts, sorry. It, here's the thing. If you give me a prog track like this, there's usually a sense of progression or something is happening, or you're showing me a lot of talent in what's being focused on. Nothing is really coming up on the in-between eight minutes of this that justifies the length to me. Okay, so I'm going to argue that. First of all, the prog thing was a joke. This is less of a prog song and more like sort of like a you know like sort of like a drone i'm not gonna call it a drone track but that's like the closest thing this is like there's a cute three minutes rock song at the beginning that evolves into an ambient track ambient track mm -hmm. and i think that it's uh, it's all right as that i i'm a big fan of ambient music by the way so like i i will discuss all day to you about texture i don't think this is I don't think this will compete with Fenness or anything, at, you know, at the moment. It won't be the big surprise breakout ambient act of the decade, but it's good. It, it's smart. It's interesting. It's experimental. They bridge from like this, okay, rock song that sort of like fades into a coda. And then the coda has some like musical layering, some instrument go and go. It's fine. It's a fine closure to the album. I don't think necessarily the last bit. I I, I wouldn't call it two songs bridged by by stuff because I don't. I think the eight minutes of noodling. <laughs> yeah, because I think the last bit it's a quite natural evolution of the whole like ending bit. I think there is definitely like the first three minutes which are just a song. And then they evolve into this thing. But I think the ending like 10 minutes are like a quite organic kind of ambient-ish, texture-ish track that closes the record. It's not great. Again, I'm not going to put it on my favorite ambient songs of all time. But I think it's a fine closure for the record. I think it has this very interesting quality of you technically finishing the record, but then having this cute atmosphere to lead you out of it, to sort of like, you know how when you, I don't know if you know this, but when you sometimes you play an RPG, you do a debriefing at the end, which is partly to check, you know, feedback from all the people who played the RPG with you, and partly to just get out of the mood of being in character, partly because you need... You need sort of like a buffer bit between RPGing and real world stuff. So you get you get this zone. And I think this works in quite the same. It's sort of like a buffer 
between the emotionally heightened reality of this record and, you know, coming out of it. Like, the first track is due into this record, this giant, like, soft coda sort of eases you out of the record. And if you don't need that, you can quite honestly just stop it after three minutes and it's gonna be fine. You're not missing much. Yeah. I I like this track. I think it serves a good purpose in the album, but I could see not liking it. But that was Clarity by Jimmy Eat World. Um, overall, a fantastic album. Yeah, I I love it. It's so this is great. Again, I paid money halfway through the research for this to pick up this album. And I am poor, but I would have paid money if I had any. Um, but yeah, this is like solid four out of five for me. And my going to a four point five out of five on repeat listening. It's um. I'm really into it. I will listen to this on my own time a lot from now. It, I like it. It's it's a very nice change of pace, and the first thing that has me excited to discover more gems than just find myself going, that was better than I thought it would be, like last week. Yeah, it was very good texturally. It was interesting because it was this very explorative, interesting, quiet record, but with this fairly pop production, like fairly, especially for the time, it was like quite polished production-wise, which was an interesting contrast. And sometimes it falls into some small pitfalls because some strings here and there, some chimes here and there are a bit cheesy. There is a lot of cheese on this record, but you know, most of the cheese is quite good, it's fine. I, I I can ignore most of the bad cheese, and some of the most cheesy parts are actually quite enjoyable. I like it. That's some smart songwriting, like very emotional, Jim Atkins voices. You know, it's where I like my emo art. Well, where I like my emo art is like very screamy and angry and just like very crying it. But aside from that, Jim Atkins is also where I like my emo art, which is a good in-between between... Deep emotional emotionality and um, and just like a pop palatable, you know, tone. It's good. It's really good. It's like explorative, but it also has like some nice choruses. It flows very well. I think aside from Sunday, the rest of the record is quite well paced. Everything flows into each other very well. It creates an atmosphere, and then it pumps that atmosphere into like heavier songs I, I really like this record go listen to it this is a thing that you can do we we do listen this records for you but then you can you know actually go uh, there would be probably be like a, a spotify link on any, every episode with the record even though spotify is evil but whatever everyone uses it i don't you don't because you're a morally morally right person i'm not I use Spotify. I thought it was just because I'm old. Uh, I'm not learning these apps. <laughs> but yeah, good. honestly, this is the first record on this podcast that I will genuinely recommend. So whoever is listening to this, go listen to it. 
It's really good. Also, I just want to get one bit. You kept mentioning some of the cheesiness of the instruments and things. Did you see the story about that in the liner notes? I didn't. Please tell. So they were talking about how they had to record at a couple of different studios because one of them would have run them through their cash incredibly quickly. So they moved to a place out of Burbank called Clear Lake. And they were going at recording like it was the last chance they would ever have to perform in a studio. So they rented everything they could get. They said, we got every percussion instrument and toy possible. There were vibes, bells, tubular bells, temple blocks, multiple cowbells with different pitches in case the first few weren't incredibly right. They were wheeling in a timpani when we realized we had taken it a little too far. You would just walk by and have to start messing around with something. It came, uh, the track in question this story is on is For Me This Is Heaven. Heaven has a lot of cool rhythmic parts going on. That came from Zach and Mark just tweaking around with the trays of hand percussion instruments. I could be wrong, but this may be the only Jimmy Eat World song with a triangle. Love it. Love it. It's a great story. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I like these dudes. They, they seem yeah, extreme, these guys are great. They seem extremely all right. <laughs> uh, again, when we get to the next album, it's got a little more teeth on it, and the title track on that, yeah, yeah. Imagine it would be a more aggressive record, but clarity. There's a reason why this became a cult classic, and after like. Every musical outlet poo-pooed at the time they went back and realized, no, this is actually good. This is very much the talk-talk accidentally creates post-rock kind of, oh, everyone slept on this album. And I'm just going to say, for me, this is heaven. Okay. (laughs) I I think we're done. (laughs) Isn't Just Like Heaven a Cure song? Yes. Yeah. You, soft and lonely, you, strange as angels sitting in the deep blue ocean, etc. Yeah. It's a good track. It is. Same song, different chorus. And this was this episode of Gotta Get Out of This Town, a 2000 pop-punk and emo-pop retrospective, and for once we really liked the record. Thanks for listening to us, thanks for following us, thanks for checking us out, or whatever other synonyms I can find for that. You can find more of our stuff at getoutofthistown.com, which is our website, which will be set up by the time you're listening to this. You can also email us with any comment, idea, questions, or whatever at getoutofthistownpodcast at gmail.com. We will take about a month to reply to anything that you send us because we're on a month delay with what you're listening to, but we will get to it at some point. Don't worry about it. You can also follow us on Twitter at ggottpodcast. There's probably going to be a link somewhere because it's way easier to click on it than to parse it from what I say and you can follow us on iTunes leave a rating, a review and so on that shit actually help it's trite but just like 
Jimmy It Words music, it can sometimes be tried to repeat this thing, but it's functional. It helps for YouTube reviewing us and putting, you know, whatever rating iTunes uses nowadays. Next week, we will talk about another pop punk record, which is Phoenix TX by Phoenix TX. Do you have anything to plug, Fletch? Not this week. I am currently between projects, but if you like anime and want to revisit something that's of this era, actually, I have been diving into Cyborg 009, the Cyborg Soldier, on another show, Boku no Stop. So please look that up, and I will make sure to put some of that out when we get this episode live. Neat! And you can find me on Twitter at ACCTheMoon. And if you want to support us, we don't have a Patreon, but you should pester our label so they finally release our Patreon for us. Drew Barrymore, save us. <laughs> Goodbye. See ya. I've got the time to stick around I'll catch my flight like a pop pocket and get out of this town What's on your mind? There's no point left to keep your image down Let's terrify